0: Hi there. I'm Mark Bittman and welcome to food. As always, you can reach out to us at food at markbittman.com. And I'm happy to say more and more people have done so recently. We've had some really interesting conversations with listeners and, um, are looking forward to having more. If you're interested in chatting with us, email us and let us know. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, say good things about it. And, um, That will help us keep going consider to subscribing to our newsletter the bitman project at bitmanproject.com full of goodies getting better all the time okay we have a great guest for you today super interesting and we'll get on with that in a sec
3: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include... Dynamic Sky panorama glass roof. Front row massaging seats. You know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Lamb and apricots are one of those combinations which exist together in a relation that is not just complementary, but that seems to partake of a higher order of inevitability, a taste which exists in the mind of God. These combinations have the quality of a logical discovery. Bacon and eggs, rice and soy sauce, sauterne and foie gras, white truffles and pasta, steak frites, strawberries and cream, lamb and garlic, Armagnac and prunes, port and stilton, fish soup and rouille, chicken and mushrooms. To the committed explorer of the senses, the first experience of any of them will have an impact comparable with an astronomer's discovery of a new planet. That's from the Debt to Pleasure, a novel by my friend John Lanchester, and serves as part of the intro to Nicky Segnet's book, The Flavor Thesaurus, which came out in 2010 and has since sold hundreds of thousands of copies, an amazing book that made quite an impact in my circles on others. In that book, Segnet, a prolific food writer based in London, talks about the deep understanding of the links between flavors, such as those mentioned by Lanchester, and her frustration over not being able to get that link. The Flavor Thesaurus was born from that frustration. It lists countless pairings, along with recipes and ideas. It's easy to understand why The Flavor Thesaurus was so popular. You look through it, and you get it in a second. It's a new classic. It's timeless. But saying that despite prompting from many eager readers, didn't want to do a sequel at first. However, finally... Her readers broke her, and it's a good thing because her new book, The Flavor Thesaurus, More Flavors, is a plant-based take on the original and just as fabulous. It makes for great reading and it makes for great talking, as you'll hear in this interview. Kate and I are thrilled to welcome Nikki to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for inviting me. I remember
0: when the original Flavor of Thesaurus came out, which was more than ten years ago. And I remember being super impressed. It was novel. It was provocative. I remember feeling or thinking about the parallels between the early worker people like Elizabeth Rosen, people who were saying you don't have to do much to radically change the way a dish tastes, and what you were saying. But your approach was and is much more literary, which makes it I mean it's an amazing. How fun it is to just go through the pages and read them, so you know I understand full well the fundamental economic imperative of doing sequels, so I don't really have to ask why, but I can ask why why a sequel now, how did the original idea for the flavor thesaurus come about? why a meat free version, et etc? Just like how are you feeling about this?
4: The original came about in about two thousand and seven. I worked as a brand consultant. Uh, I've got no experience in writing anything. And I I just wanted that book. I cooked a lot, a lot, a lot. You know, I'd come home from work even if it was late and I would always make something from scratch. And I was quite into trying lots of different cuisines and uh, experimenting with other people's recipes, never my own. And I kind of wanted to go beyond that, but I didn't really know how to go beyond that. Nothing kind of drew me really towards maybe taking a really good cookery course or anything. I, What I was really interested in was these flavor combinations that kept coming up, like strawberries and balsamic vinegar or strawberries and black pepper and you know unusual stuff. And it was at the same time really that the fat duck and molecular was kind of really riding high. And so the Heston was doing lots and lots of interesting combinations that were kind of really exciting the mainstream press. And and I just wanted to know why, you know, why those things might work together or what's going on below just kind of like, oh, this is nice or this is mysterious. And so I went out one day to buy a book about that. And it didn't turned out it didn't exist. And mm. I think I joked to my husband that Oh, I'll write it myself. And that went away from my head from about a week, I think. And then I was sitting at my desk one lunchtime eating some very dull sandwich. And <laughs> the title, the flavor thesaurus, came into my head from nowhere. And you know, I'm a great reader and I love Roger's Thesaurus. So I kind of had this idea that, oh, well, this is the form of it. This book will be a back index of flavor combinations. And then the front will be an elaboration. It will kind of go into a bit more about why and where does that come from and nice descriptions of how different flavours work together. And so I kind of, I just started to get on with it and making the back index of what goes with what kind of probably took about three weeks. Oh. and then And then writing the front part and researching the rest of it took about three years. But in between time, I wrote a little sample and then, yeah, it took three years to kind of write, learn about flavor, learn about flavor science, uh, you know, put it together in that very meticulous way that it's put together. And it came out and it was, you know, I mean, not in the States, but it came out here and it was, you know, quite, it just took off. And I found it was you know, the first thing I ever written. I found it really hard. I worked really, really long hours. I felt a bit frazzled and a bit mad at the end uh so and instantly people were saying well when are you going to oh you haven't written about zucchini you haven't written about (laughs) beans you haven't written about lentils so what are you when are you going to do this and i and i I say in the introduction to this one like never i'm never going to do it again i'm going to write a book about submarines i just i don't want to i'm too frazzled with it i'm not but of course as time goes on I mean, I I honestly would say I have not done this because the other one was a success. I couldn't, I just wouldn't, I, you know, I can earn money other ways. I just couldn't put myself through that unless I really want to sit there and write about this. Because the research is, you know, it's, it takes such a long time sometimes to find something interesting to say. But I had started to feel there were lots of things that I wanted to write about that I hadn't written about it was feeling like quite a long time. It took me eight years to write the book afterwards. So I had quite a lot of space thinking about some other stuff. And then I just, I got really interested in understanding a lot more about the things I hadn't written about. So, you know, how are lentils different from, you know, from variant to variant? What about beans? What about that half packet of pomegranate seeds that I've always got in the back of my cupboard when I've been cooking an Ottolenghi recipe? You know, that. There was just so much scope again. And I suddenly felt like, oh, it's not writing a book. It's not writing 400 pages. It's writing lots of little chapters about great things that I love. And I, you know, I mean, I am plant forward in my own preferences. And I I was a vegetarian when I was younger. And I kind of really liked that way of eating. So that kind of came together, and it, but it was a, but it was a sudden moment, of like oh god, I actually really fancy doing that. And I said in the proposal, uh, this one, must, I think it would take me two years, and it took me four.
0: <laughs> yeah, they look hard. They look yeah. like challenging books to write.
4: They are, but I sound much more cheerful on the page than I am when I'm doing. <laughs> I sound like I'm having a much better time. You're very self-deprecating
3: and funny and in a way that I was completely envious of in the book. Who manages to write a book like this? That's basically, it's a cookbook in some ways, but it's also very academic. It's a lot of things and you still manage to be funny. Yeah, I was sort of amazed by that.
4: There's not a lot of it in food, is there? I think it's because I just feel like I'm talking to myself. In uh, or talking to myself in the kitchen. I don't know, Mark, what you imagine when you're writing, but I suppose I think I'm talking to someone who is like me. (laughs) And that we wouldn't take it massively seriously because it is, you know, a lot of the time it is just cooking. That's the way to do it. When I was a
3: kid and people used to compliment my dad's writing, they used to say that they liked the way he wrote because it was the way he talked. So I think that there's always there's a link. Like People can tell when you're being genuine and when you're putting on a show. So that comes through in your books for sure. So I was reading the introduction to the first flavor thesaurus, and you talk about uh, your frustration over the fact that you couldn't figure out pairings, what goes with what, which I definitely share that frustration. Um, and you you said you couldn't get that link. And so that was part of what led to the book. I'm curious about how you did this kind of research like what kind of research goes into figuring out what foods go together yeah
4: i, I have because i cook so extensively i think i did have a, quite a strong grasp on flavor principles so um certainly i grew up with you know my mum cooking french italian maybe a bit of spanish and then um you know and then my generation have kind of been a lot of Indian cooking, a lot of more Asian cooking, a lot of adding kind of layers. So I think because I, and I did a lot of that, and I was, as I say, kind of quite uh, free ranging in the recipes that I followed, I had quite a good idea of what countries kind of use which aromatics and stuff. That what I was trying to do with the book really is, as I say, is a little bit more about why. And I went into the project thinking that it would be much more about science than it turned out to be. So I, yeah, I, I think I was expecting to find a big answer. I mean, it's a dumb kind of thing to think, but I don't know. I suppose I, perhaps I thought I would find the key. So what I did made a list of all the things that I have in my larder obviously not the truffles and the caviar, but you know, like a (laughs) hundred, it must've been like 160. It started off 160 and then some of those things could be folded into other things because bacon and gammon and stuff, you know, they could, they can be put into the same chapter in order to not repeat too much and to make things you don't want it to get dull. So some things could be consolidated and then as I say drop this kind of master list knowing that that's going to change as you go through and you might find interesting stuff to add to that list but then I think you have to sort of imagine it like I've said this before but it's a bit like sitting in a cafe in Italy watching a parade of couples so you're sitting there and you know Watercress and chicken, watercress uh, <laughs> and leek, watercress—you know, whatever—that they're all parading past you, and you've got to find something interesting to say about all of them. And what you're saying about all of them mainly needs to be something about what they taste like. What is their sensory quality? Because uh, it, in my mind, all the time, it's as much to do with flavour as possible this little book is, that's its subject. It's not about healthy eating. It's not about home economics. It's not about the planet. It's flavor, flavor, flavor. So it's always keeping your eye on that. Then what is the interesting thing to say about this particular couple? And sometimes it might be, here are five different ways that this pairing uh, is presented around the world. Different things like, I think, like the egg and bacon from the first book. You'll have something like the carbonara wow. from Italy, egg and bacon, the, you know, the English and American breakfasts, whereas in France, maybe the salad frisier au And uh, So, you, you know, that's kind of, that's a nice little entry to sort of say, look at this, you know, we can make it work in all these different ways. But then we have here, we eat a lot of rhubarb in this country and rhubarb and ginger is a classic. I've always thought that that didn't really, that's not a great combination in my mind. But actually, when I looked into it, that's a combination that comes from the pharmacy. So mm. rhubarb is a purgative and ginger is a stomach settler. And so it used to be sold in pills and powders. And as you know, you know, di- uh, recipe books used to be recipes for the kitchen in the front and recipes for the kind of, of the medical purposes in the back. So that was it. That's the process, really. It's just... I think one might call it a slog really, Mm. but I, you know, I know what I'm after when I'm doing research. I know what I'm looking for. And I kind of know, I think what the reader wants as well, because it's just this little book that's very separate from everything else. It's so funny that you brought up rhubarb and ginger because I just made a
3: rhubarb and ginger cake from Hedy McKinnon's new book over the weekend with, with my dad, with Mark uh, and everyone loved it. But I had certainly never used that combination before. It just, I saw the picture and I saw the recipe and it looked good and it was terrific. Yeah.
4: See, I'm, as I say, I'm not always
3: right. <laughs> oh gosh. I'm definitely very, very rarely right when it comes to pairings. But I have a question that might, it might be completely dumb because I don't see how anyone could do this, but did you try out every
4: single pairing in the book? Uh, My budget did not extend to all those truffle pairings (laughs) all the caviar pairings. And in fact, actually a lot of, you know, so no, no, but uh, I mean, really a lot of them and the whole time I'm writing, I've got a, you know, I'm writing in rounds of, okay, we're going to do that, going to work on this ingredient for a couple of weeks, get very immersed in it and then cook, you know, cook, research, write in little cycles and then move on to the next thing. I think it's really important. I think it is embroidered into the work that you have actually, you've made it, you've tasted it, you've smelt it, you've tried it several ways. I think it enriches the work, even if it's not necessarily making it onto the page in an obvious way.
0: I will say that it's not particularly relevant, but just I have that experience in common with you because how to cook everything, especially the first one when I didn't know what I was doing, was very much a management project like it was very much making lists and trying to there was nothing literary or novel writing of, about it it was like okay i need to do a book with a thousand good recipes i guess i'll make a list of 2000 and start eliminating or that kind of thing and yeah the, yeah so i have that kind of, then i sort of thought this is project management this is not really that creative it's um
4: right Well, it is, it's a very creative book because of, I mean, the way that it's those kind of like, and this is what you can do with it. You know, at the end, that kind of stuff, you don't see that. Certainly when that, when it came out, you didn't see that in many books, which is kind of like, Hey, you can loosen up your shoulders. That was the kind of thing. I mean, I didn't, I I didn't have that book when I really needed it. You know, that particular time when I was, (laughs) how many recipes are in it?
0: I don't know, 1,500, something like that. holy moly. But I don't know how I did it. I don't have anyone's – I don't have an audience in mind when I'm doing it. It was the only thing I knew how to do. I mean, I did it the way I knew how to do it.
4: But you're probably writing it for yourself then.
0: You're you're cooking it and you're talking to
2: yourself.
0: You know, I had two kids. I was trying to do this book. But I was also really trying to, like, cook dinner every night. And mm-hmm. um, and that went on for years and years. And there was something about just cutting corners. I can't remember who I was talking to. I think Emma, Kate's sister, I was talking to the other day. And she was saying, I just don't have that kind of time. And I said, you just have to cut every corner imaginable. And that was my – I mean, I remember in the 80s when the kids were really young. And – um. And I was trying to cook dinner every night, and it was always about cutting corners. Like, if there were capers and anchovies in the same dish, I would say, well, how could you possibly need both capers and anchovies? I mean, it's nice, but if you're looking for super tart saltiness, one or the other is going to do the trick. So I don't know. I just got into that style, and it became my style. And the variation thing... I just could never believe that there were all these recipes for vegetable soup when it was clear that vegetable soup was just like you take some water and put some vegetables in it.
4: I know. Having researched, I think spending quite a long time researching lentil soup, uh, I make a joke about it in the new book. It's just... You know, people are like, oh, this is my special lentil soup. And it's just like all the other ones. <laughs> except some have got bacon in it and some of them don't have bacon. Apart right. from that, they're pretty interchangeable. Right. And that's how it should be. I mean,
0: <laughs> anyway, back to you. Uh, so you mentioned Heston, who's Heston Blumenthal, who started Fat Duck. And um, I'm just wondering if you talk to people like that about this, if you talk to food technologists. You said originally you thought – It would be more scientific than it was. But who did you? I mean, this is really creative and imaginative stuff. Was it largely intuition, or did you talk to people all the time about
4: it? I think most of it is book research, so looking into dark corners where most people don't go, going to the British Library and (laughs) reading books about flavor science, teaching myself about the molecular makeup of flavor uh, yeah, speaking to some people. I mean, I um, uh, there's a book called Flavor Creation by John Wright and Marie Wright, uh, and I got to talk to her. She's a creative flavorist. She checked the facts of the um, flavor science stuff that's in the first book. Um, I mean, I could I obviously didn't have access to people like Heston or you know big names because I was nobody and I mean I am nobody uh, but I was really nobody then and you know you don't people are not going to give their time to actually that's not fair some people do give their time but I was also a bit shy about asking for that kind of thing and but I did you know I one of the people who I did speak to I went and spent quite a long time with a cheesemonger. And he was really incredible. He was just a very good teacher and knew kind of what to show me and what were the interesting things. And uh, I think we just had fun kind of describing the cheeses to ourselves and talking about pairing. So there was, you know, there's a bit of human interaction, but, you know, reading a lot of agricultural books, reading horticultural books, I thought there would be a bit more to draw on with the second book. I thought there would, would you know, the interest in the subject of flavor has boomed. I would have thought, you know, um, but yeah, there hasn't been a great deal. There's been some things like um, a lexicon developed for pomegranate flavor, one for cashew nut flavor, that kind of thing is quite useful to me. But there are certain things where, you know, crops that aren't particularly financially exciting don't tend to have that kind of research behind them. So you have to take it yourself. And then, you know, eating beans and, like I say, lentils and trying to really intuit the difference between them and spend time really um, concentrating on what they taste like, trying to divorce them from what I know they tend to go with in order just to try and concentrate on what they are and, you know, develop, you know, using my own palette, which I suppose is quite developed now because I do so much of this. So like just piecing together, like looking for little interesting clues and not being frightened to just maybe give people a hint sometimes rather than necessarily trying to go all the way because it's when it comes down to it, it's a book, isn't it, for creative people? It's for people to come up with their own ideas, to get their minds working, to you know, help menu, develop menus, to develop their own palette. So I'm always quite confident that it doesn't have to be 100% right. It should be right-ish, but, you know.
0: That's it, how it seems. It seems right-ish, yeah. <laughs> and it seems often right and really fun. I mean, it's a good read in its way. Thank you.
4: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash
1: weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33 inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out Aquatru. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bitman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com, and enter code Bitman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman B-I-T-T-M-A-N. B-I-T-T-M-A-N.
3: In the beginning of the original flavor thesaurus, you quote John Lanchester. And he says that he calls certain combinations of foods a taste which exists in the mind of God. And he says lamb and apricots, uh, bacon and eggs, rice and soy sauce, which is my personal favorite, strawberries and cream. And so now that you're basically the expert on pairings... I want to know what your favorite pairings are and then maybe the ones that surprise you
4: the most. So for favorites in the new, so in the new book, I think I was trying to understand a bit about Bay leaf because we use Bay leaves so much as an automatic reaction. Uh, I don't really think about what they taste like in themselves. They're such a sort of ensemble player. And so I made a Bay leaf syrup so I could just taste it and get an idea of at least what it's, you know what its flavors are like when it's cooked in water, and noticed in that that there was the, the the kind of herbal flavor to it. It's got a sort of slightly vermouth-like flavor to a bay leaf, and put that with some um gooseberries. Sorry, I can't stop talking about. Grape. They're just about <laughs> to come into season here. I'm obviously way too excited. <laughs> so, and there, there are I'll come on to. I'm going to draw a parallel with maple syrup in a minute, but. Because you don't they don't come along very often they have a short season and you can just sweeten them and they're very nice in a crumble and a pie they're the kind of like a very tart apple in in their way but they have just like slightly um more floral herbal note to them well they're absolutely incredible with bailey so that was
5: hmm.
4: a sort of you know just an an intuited combination on my part. And you know, they're often used with herbs, but I really feel like that that there is a real affinity there and that the bailey just ever so slightly improves what was already there in the gooseberry, which was the same with maple syrup and fennel. So just, you know, I tried lots of maple syrup is really expensive here. And so I'm very cautious that we, you know, that we don't pair it with too many things because you know it's likely that you'll spoil it. You know, it's very delicate, but it's also very complex and it's got lots and lots of flavours that you don't want to just kind of ruin. So if you add lemon juice to maple syrup, you create something that tastes a bit like a product that we have here called golden syrup, which is a quarter of the price and it's like a byproduct of the sugar processing. But a little bit of fennel seed on top of the darker, I mean, either the amber or the dark maple syrup is a wonderful thing. And I think what it does is it, picks up on a natural note anyway and it slightly extends it but it's also the great thing about that like the lemon in the so people make puddings here with golden syrup but they add extra lemon to it and it kind of adds a freshness that means that that sweetness isn't too boring isn't doesn't the palate doesn't tire of it and i feel like fennel is the same as such it's got you know obviously it's got more you know it's got it's natural aniseed lick to it But it's also got this kind of freshening side to it. When you look at those seeds and they're green, you know, it's kind of like, it adds a crispness. So you can make quite a heavy maple syrup dessert, like a maple syrup tart, but put just a kind of a couple of pinches of the fennel on the side, on the top. And it just, it doesn't spoil the maple syrup, but it just lifts it and freshens it. It's a beautiful combination. So that's a couple of the favorites from this book. From the old book, I always go on about it. It's like coffee and orange or coffee and blackcurrant, just those, you know, those things in a dessert, all that bitterness and sourness, you know, with the usual kind of dessert levels of cream or sugar or butter or whatever. There's just so much going on and the combination is great. And if you like chocolate and orange, I think coffee and orange is really worth trying. You know, don't obviously put your orange juice in your coffee that wouldn't be a nice kind of thing but you know if we're talking about say a dessert where we have meringue and cream with some an orange sorbet and a coffee ice cream say in the same thing it's just it's just wonderful because it's so complicated uh, and if you I suppose if you like food you probably love that kind of complexity so it's not necessarily the easiest combination but they are very happy together
0: we were talking to our colleague Holly yesterday and she lives in San Diego. So they're they have very long seasons that kind of don't stop. And she was saying she was eating strawberries with five spice powder on them and would never eat strawberries again without having five spice wow. powder on them. So okay. I haven't tried it, but
4: yeah. It's quite cinnamon heavy, isn't it?
0: But it's cinnamon, anise, allspice, pepper, clove, something like that.
4: Yeah. So strawberries have a natural cotton candy flavor in them, and if you mix them, particularly with cinnamon, that's it. Just picks up on that candied flavor. It's beautiful. It Come, comes together really well. So I can. I think I can see why that might be nice. Also with the pepper because the strawberries and pepper is yeah. very popular, isn't it? So yeah, I'll try that. I'm a bit frightened of not. Wanting to try strawberries any other way, though, you know?
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she was serious. Um, well, last question, uh, which we ask everyone, and that is what did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> strawberries with five spice back
4: you know what I had, Mark, Kate? I had fish and chips. <laughs>
5: because
4: we're it's the school holidays. We have people to stay. And uh, my husband and I had this great idea that we would take three eight-year-olds and one four-year-old on a very short walk that we used to do because my husband and I were great walkers before we had kids. Oh, it's just, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's probably an hour in all. Well, (laughs) and it turned out there wasn't an hour in all. I think it was three hours. (laughs) And um That meant that the Spanish meal, which I'm actually doing tonight, I'm just doing some tapas because we have quite a lot of different eating requirements at the table. So tonight I'm doing kind of a tapas mix of stuff. But last night we were just, everyone was so tired. We went to the fish and chip shop and got a good old-fashioned cod in batter with chips.
0: Malt vinegar or what?
4: Salt and vinegar for sure. Absolutely. Salt and vinegar. And then... As I say, in the flavor of thesaurus about fish and chips, it has to be wrapped in paper. <laughs> because the paper is the the paper that we have in in the proper fish and chip shop seasons the fish and chips in a way that you would never experience if you ate them in Claridges or in a pub or anywhere else, where else it's the paper is is the smell of it is absolutely part of what fish and chips really is.
0: right. No national prejudice is there, of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's it. Thank you. It's been really fun and um, hope to see you sometime.
4: Thank you. Yeah, well, give us a shout if you're in London and you want to go and have fish and chips.
0: <laughs> Wrapped in the right <laughs> kind of paper. <laughs> 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 Thank
4: All you, right. Nikki. Bye, Kate. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you.
0: It would be foolhardy of me not to give you a sample of Nikki's wonderful writing and creative thinking, so I'm going to read the entry for coffee and maple syrup. An unexpected combination, and yet that's what this book is full of. A quote, coffee and maple syrup have a lot of flavor molecules in common, but when they are paired in a cup, it can be tricky to distinguish the finer points of the syrup. Like most mixtures of brown sugar and coffee, the combination recalls coffee fudge. To give both flavors their due, pour maple syrup over a set coffee custard in place of the caramel in a creme caramel. And now I'm not quoting, and now here's how Nikki tells you how to do that. For two servings, pour one cup of warm whole milk onto one tablespoon of coffee granules and stir until the coffee is dissolved. In a pitcher that's large enough to hold all the ingredients, whisk two eggs with two tablespoons superfine sugar, then gradually stir in the milky coffee. Strain the custard into two ramekins, dividing it evenly between them. Place the ramekins in a roasting pan and pour in enough hot water to come halfway up their sides, then cover with a loose tent of foil and cook in a 300 degree Fahrenheit oven for 25 minutes. Check how set the custards are. When there's still a little wobbly in the center, remove and leave to cool before chilling in the fridge. To serve, run a knife around the edge of each ramekin to loosen the custard, then cover with a small plate, invert, and give it one firm shake as if you were trying to talk some sense into it. Lift the ramekin and the custard should plop out, pour over some dark maple syrup. An amazing idea. Enjoy that. Thanks to Nikki Segnet, who started out claiming to know nothing about flavor pairing, and is now probably the world's best flavor pair. Amazing. Follow her on Instagram, at Nikki Segnet, that's N-I-K-I-S-E-G-N-I-T, and on Twitter, at Real Segnit. The Flavor Thesaurus, More Flavors, is out now. Thanks again, as always, to our engineer, the wonderful Davis Lloyd, to my co-host and producer, Kate Bittman, and to all of you for listening. Come back next week when we will have somebody unbelievable. Bye for now.
5: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered.